0: All right. Good morning, church. Thank you, Anita and Mike, for pulling that video together as we lift up adoption awareness this month of November. We'll have another video uh, next week uh, to go into that a little bit more. Um, It was fun to talk to Maya in the process of what she wanted us to share at church. And, you know, she is so thankful for this community here that she grew up in with aunties and uncles and we're thankful as a whole as a family. Also just wanted to extend a thank you from Erica and I. We just got back from the US on Wednesday night and um, we were there for my mom's funeral. And it was just a very meaningful time to be with my dad, my siblings, Cody and Maya, and with family in general. Um, So thank you so much for your prayers, for your encouragement. I've definitely felt the support of the community and um, the time went better there than I could have hoped for, so it was good to be there, Um, and it's good to be back with you all today. We are nearing the end of the Beginning and the End series, and this has been starting in Genesis and ending in Revelation. And I thought I'd do just a quick recap as we are nearing the end. We might have forgotten where we came from. So we started all the way back in Genesis. Genesis 1 and 2, we see this charge, this mandate from God to flourish. We were created to flourish. We are created in the image of God and to reflect that image into the world. The garden was this temple. It was new creation. Things were happening as they should be. And of course, we know things went sideways with sin entering into creation, but it didn't change God's mission of flourishing. He gives that same charge to Noah, and he gives that same charge today. Now, the last six, seven weeks or so, we've been in Revelation itself. And Revelation, remember, is a letter. So it would have been understood by the original audience. They would have known these references that we've been digging up in these symbols. But it's apocalyptic. So it's highly symbolic. It's using references that we're not aware of. Um, It's also prophetic, not prophetic in the predictive sense of the word, but prophetic in it's a call to faithfulness. And remember, this is a letter written to those in the margin, written by somebody in the margins. It's meant to give them hope and encouragement. We read in chapter 4 that there is the throne. Rome was not at the center of the universe. In fact, God's throne is at the center. And then this curious phrase where John hears the lion and he turns to look, and it's not the lion he sees, but the slain lamb. The slain lamb is how God has achieved his victory. Pastor Brenda unpacked for us what the dragon was, Satan, the evil one. The child, uh, the woman being Israel and the child being Jesus, and she reminded us that the dragon has been defeated, but he is going after the child's children, Jesus' children. That's us, the church. Babylon, Pastor Brent did a great job last week talking about what is Babylon. It's literally Rome, um, but it's also a symbol for the way things are not supposed to be in this world, oppression, injustice systems that exploit others, um, evil. And then finally, the end times. The end times, some people say, are we in the end times now? Say, we are, and we have been for 2,000 years. You know, we read the newspaper and we all think, now, now is when it's all coming to fruition. But the end times started when Christ ascended, when Christ returned to the Father And have come all the way until now, and they'll continue to go until Christ returns. This is what the meaning of the end times is. The kingdom is already and not yet. We're in this in between stage. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we see things going on in this world that are not God's intention. Now, Scott McKnight, uh, one of the books we've been referencing through this series, comes from him, and he says it this way Revelation records a timeless battle between two cities, Babylon and the New Jerusalem. It's a battle between two lords, the Lord of Lords, Jesus, and the Lord of the Empire, the emperors of Rome. And we're still in that battle today new creation, old creation. Two weeks ago, I spoke on the day of the Lord, these series of judgments, these three series of judgments that we read about. And there's a small D when God judges empires like Babylon that are oppressing others and capital D for the day of the Lord, the final day of the Lord that we're going to get to next Sunday. Next Sunday, we're going to talk about the lake of fire. Anybody curious about the lake of fire? Anybody nervous about the lake of fire? We're going to unpack it next week and uh, looking forward to that. Okay, so before we jump into our text today, see, those three judgments didn't lead to repentance, didn't lead to transformation, didn't lead to people worshiping God, but something did lead to that. Now, before we get to what that was, I want to revisit the rapture. I spoke on this early in the series, and this idea of the rapture is that God is going to return, He's going to take away. Christians, so they don't have to go through the tribulation, okay? It's a misconception or a misinterpretation of revelation. God is going to take us out of the problems, okay? And so that actually, if we have that view that God is going to take us out of the world and the trials will continue, it's a little bit like, why would I care for this world, right? If it's doomed, if everything is going into the lake of fire, why would I care? It's like rearranging you know, the deck chairs on the Titanic, right? It's not going to make a difference. It's all going down. But that is not what God is saying to us in Revelation itself. Now, where does this view of a rapture come from? Because you won't see the word rapture um, in Revelation, but it comes from this verse here in 1 Thessalonians. This says this then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. So you see this verse, and and I've seen like paintings of this. It's like Christ descending, right? And all the believers flying up to Jesus and then sort of being transported to heaven. And and maybe if we read this and we don't understand the context, that seems like a reasonable explanation. But Remember, this is a letter the original audience would have known, like, this language is for when a king returns from battle. When a king returns to his home city, victorious, people would come out to greet the king. They wouldn't come out and greet the king and then go to the foreign land. They would come out and welcome him back to his city. So this idea that God is coming back, he's not taking us away from earth, he's actually coming to dwell here. When creation when heaven and earth are completely overlapped. There's another thing here. The air is symbolic, the clouds, right? This is not a physical location. It's a symbol, right, of authority. And we read in Ephesians 2, 2 that the devil is called the prince of the air. He has authority there. But Jesus is coming back to reclaim that authority. So God does not rapture out the faithful, And he doesn't prevent our suffering, but he does protect us from being overwhelmed by the evil one. Michael Gorman, in his book, Reading Revelation Responsibly, says it this way, Revelation is not about rapture out of this world, but about faithful discipleship in this world. So if there isn't a rapture, if we're not going to avoid the suffering in the world, what is there for us? It's actually a call to faithful discipleship. And that is what John is wanting his original audience to understand. Stay faithful. Hang in there. The suffering will not last forever. God has not abandoned you. He's not going to you know, escape you from this, but he's going to be with you through it. So the three judgments didn't lead to repentance, but what does? It's actually the faithful witness of God's people. Enduring the suffering and continuing to live in the ways of Jesus is what causes people to repent and return and to worship God. So being a faithful witness is the topic of our sermon today, and we get this from Revelation 11. Let me pray. God, I thank you that you have given us this wonderfully challenging, uh, symbolic book, God, to uh, help us. God, and so I pray that your spirit is at work in it today, that you have a word for each of us today, that as we faithfully choose you, God, help us to walk in that faithfulness. In your name, amen. Verse one, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months, and I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. All right. So there's a lot going on in these first four verses. Firstly, the temple. And some scholars think that this temple is the physical temple that existed, that Judaism would come to worship but but actually uh, more scholars believe this is actually a reference to the church believers at this time considered themselves the true temple and so it's not so much the physical temple that John is talking about but he's talking about God's people that God will be present with them this human temple right this temple imagery that we actually get in scripture that God will be dwelling there in that place. It's God's intention, as he gave that promise to Moses all the way back, to be a blessing to all nations that, in fact, the church will continue to be that blessing, and eventually everybody will be blessed through God's people. What are these two witnesses? Now, I I was watching, before the series started, some of the movies that I was um, shown as a kid, um, that, that kind of embrace a way of reading this book that, that I don't embrace at all. And they have these two people, um, physical people, that are proclaiming as the two witnesses. Now, that, that is really a misunderstanding here, but it's easy to see why we could misunderstand that. I think these people are symbolic of Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah. Elijah. So Moses, you know, given, you know, the, the Ten Commandments, but Moses who went on behalf of God to Pharaoh, to what? To free them from oppression. We have talked about the plagues being a mirror for the day of the Lord. So Moses being one, and then Elijah being the other, who stood up to Ahab, who was the, the paganizing king of Israel. So it's a call for the church to oppose Babylon. It's a call for the church to oppose idolatry. It's a call to the church to remain faithful to God. And we see these references to the lampstands. As we saw at the beginning of Revelation, lampstands are the church. This is the church he's referring to in the ways that we speak into reality. We see here also the 42 months, the 1260 days, And we see this in verse 9 as well this three and a half. As we talked earlier, seven is the number of completion. And three and a half is obviously less than that. Seven could be forever, if you will complete, whole. Three and a half is less than. It's not forever, it's for a time. It's not a literal sort of days or years, but it's a symbolic number that this will happen, but it won't go on forever. So for three and a half days, some of the, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on earth. Goes on to verse 11. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. And they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them." So here we have this idea that the church is going to suffer. The world is going to look on. They are going to struggle. But then we get this turning point that in verse 11, almost as the dry bones we see in Ezekiel, God breathing life into them. That is not the last story. Yes, some of them will be martyred. Yes, they will be persecuted, but that is not the end. In fact, God will breathe life into them. And then we see in verse 12, then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up. To heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. This is a reference back to 1 Thessalonians that we talked about earlier. This idea of God coming down, what, us being with God, God being present with us, not this escape to another place. So God breathes life into the church. He does not let the church die. God, in fact, is present with the church as the church endures this suffering. So this is a prophetic sign. The church remaining faithful is the prophetic sign that God is who he says he is, that God is to be worshiped, that God is to be glorified. Going on to verse 13. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in an earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Verse 15, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and they were loud voices in heaven, which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. We get this coming together of heaven and earth. We get this proclamation back in verse 13 of everyone, this is the survivors, this is everybody who is alive at that point, comes and glorifies God. This is the only instance that we see the nations glorifying God in the midst of judgment. And it comes because of the martyrdom, because of the faithful witness of these two prophetic communities, of the church, staying faithful, speaking against Babylon and speaking for New Jerusalem, speaking against oppression and injustice and bringing the ways of God of new creation, then we will see repentance. We will see the world turning towards God. The faithful witness of the church to who God is, to how he does things Is successful when the plagues and judgments were not. This is how the nations will come to glorify their Creator. And we'll see in the very last sermon all of the nations worshiping God. And we see this beginning here. This is how the kingdom of heaven and earth come to overlap. How we see things restored. How we see these things redeemed. We get hints of that here. N.T. Wright says it this way. Suddenly out of the smoke and fire of the earlier chapters, a vision is emerging, a vision of the creator God as the God of mercy, grieving over the rebellion and corruption of the world, but determined to rescue and restore it, and doing so through the faithful death of the Lamb, and now through the faithful death of the Lamb's prophetic followers. So the faithful witness, the church as the faithful witness is what leads humanity to repentance. We have the lamb and the followers of the lamb who are to look like the lamb. They succeed where the plagues and judgments did not. So how do we be a faithful witness? That's the charge John gave the early church, and that's the charge that we can take on board today. How do we be faithful today? First thing simple enough, but maybe not so easy to do just show up. So, everybody here and online, you can, if you're kind of a gold star or tick box person, boom, you did it, right? You showed up. That's the first step. We hear, and I don't know if you've ever heard a sermon on this verse before. I, I have not, but maybe we should. Paul says this, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, you should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you. That is not the mantra of Hong Kongers, right? That's not the mantra of this city, right? We love bigger is better, right? More. We love to make a splash. We want to make our mark. We want to make a difference. We want to go big. Paul is saying, Have it be your ambition to lead a quiet life, go unnoticed. Maybe you're serving behind the scenes. Maybe you're showing up in ways that nobody else knows how you're sharing God's love in the city. Drew Dick says it this way We tend to think it's the big, bold moments that matter. In reality, it's the steady accumulation of small acts of obedience to God that add up to a life of meaning and impact. Small steps. Just showing up for those small steps. I mean, we've had so many people these last two weeks reach out to Erica and I in just small ways of a prayer, a word, an encouragement. Just showing up to whatever's in front of you. There's not a big plan. There's not a big program. Just being present. See, we can be paralyzed with choice. We have so many choices right now. I heard this phrase this week called infinite browsing. Anybody else heard this term, infinite browsing? It comes from like if you're going to watch Netflix tonight, and um, which I probably am. And I'm browsing, and there's thousands and thousands and thousands of movies. I was in the U.S. this past week, and I opened up my computer, and Netflix is there too. But all my choices were different because it was in a different country. I'm like, oh, wow, I have even more to browse. And I can end up spending a whole hour browsing and never getting to the point of why I turned on Netflix in the first place. It was to watch a movie, right? We have so many choices that sometimes it's hard to actually commit to something, Erica and I got married a while ago uh, before any dating apps. Now, dating apps are great. I'm not critiquing dating apps but you have so many choices as you're swiping through, right? The world is your oyster. And sometimes I think, wow, if there were dating apps when Erica and I started, would she would have married me, right? Maybe she would have found much better choices on the app than she got stuck with me, right? Sometimes we can be paralyzed with choice and we can prevent us from just showing up because we're not sure which thing to show up for. How do we make my biggest impact? How do I do the one right thing that I need to do? I went to a Christian school and And some of us were really paralyzed with how do I make the biggest kingdom impact, right? That's a good thing to want to do is maximize what God has given me. And it becomes actually more about me than God. Not showing up in small ways that maybe go unnoticed, but maybe that's what God's wanting. To be candid, this is hard, it's a temptation as a pastor of a church do i want to make an impact of course so revelation reading revelation to see what the charge is is to be faithful to be a faithful witness is a word of critique for me as well of what's really important in this world it's not to have the biggest light the biggest platform the biggest impact whatever that may look like God is not impressed. Show up for the thing in front of you. Now, there are some here that are showing up for everything in front of you, <laughs> and you are so busy um, that you're not able to be present, maybe to your family, or you're not able to be present to show up for your own self-care. So, if that's you, um, maybe I'm not going to say break from take a break from showing up, but maybe don't show up for everything, right? But for those that are paralyzed by choice, begin to discern what is right in front of me that I can just step into. It doesn't have to be a lifelong commitment, but what is God bringing into my life that he would want me to show up to? Maybe that is how you can be faithful in this season. Number two, being faithful is greater than being successful. Being faithful is greater than being effective. Nowhere in Revelation do we read about effectiveness or success. These churches that that John is writing to were very small, maybe 20 people each. It wasn't their size that mattered, but their faithfulness to walking and living like Jesus. Showing up for what God had in front of them, enduring faithfully the road that they were on. It's the same today. But don't we love success? If somebody famous flies into town and they've got a wonderful ministry somewhere in the world, don't we flock to it? How did you do that? Can we do it like that? And maybe that's some good motivations. You're wanting to make an impact. But we missed the point. It's like when John was sending this letter to to one of the seven churches that had lost their first love. They had lost why they're doing this anyway. But Jesus is at the heart of it. See, the church can be such a machine of programs, of making disciples, and and, and doing all these things that aren't necessarily bad, but we can miss the point of why we do what we do. The message of Revelation is simple to the church. Be a faithful witness to Jesus. Let your lives, your community look like Jesus. That's the most important thing. Leave the rest to God. In Revelation 7, we see this, I answered you, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These are the martyrs. These are the faithful witnesses, the followers of Jesus. They went through the Great Tribulation. Maybe some of them lost their lives, but they are engaged in their faith. They are washing their robes. They're not sending their robes out to be dry cleaned, right? They are doing it themselves, and they're not washing them in their own blood, but in the blood of Jesus, because that Is what makes the difference is who Jesus is. We engage in the work of Jesus. We engage in his life giving spirit. We engage in his redemption and restoration. We experience it for ourselves and we bear witness to it to the world. How to be faithful look like Jesus. See, it's their Jesus-like endurance through suffering that is a compelling witness, a compelling testimony to the world, to the nations. The church doesn't escape suffering. In fact, it's to be a witness to Jesus in the midst of suffering. What will come out of your character? What will emerge from your life as you endure? Whatever suffering you might, whenever life goes sideways, will you continue to look like Jesus? How did Jesus conquer? How does he win? Through sacrifice, through going to the cross. And that wasn't easy for Jesus either. We The night in the Garden of Gethsemane, three times throughout the night, he's like, God, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Let this suffering pass from me. I'm not sure I want to go to the cross. This is not going to be easy. And yet he's able to get to the point that says, not my will, but your will be done. If the cross wasn't easy for Jesus, it will not be easy for us either. But the lamb wins because the lamb is slain. How does the church win? Through the sword, through oppression, through guilt, Through manipulation? No. Through the way of Jesus? Through sacrifice? Through suffering? That's hard to market, isn't it? I think it's why Jesus, when the crowds got the largest, gave some of his hardest teachings. And so many walked away from them. I don't think that's for me. See, Jesus doesn't bring salvation through the death of his enemies. Jesus brings salvation through his own death. And he invites us to the same journey. I heard one megachurch pastor say this last very week that being the lamb doesn't work anymore. Jesus came as the lamb the first time, but he's coming back as the lion. This whole dying on the cross thing, this whole self-sacrifice thing doesn't work anymore. It's time to get off the cross and basically be an angry Jesus. <laughs> he has missed the point of God's message. He has misunderstood revelation. That is not Jesus. Jesus keeps loving the way he has always loved. He came not to be served, but to serve. He came to give life so that we might have life. See, the reward of following Jesus is Jesus. It's not a better marriage. It's not prosperity. It's not wealth. It's not meaning or purpose. Now, maybe some of those things come along in your journey with Jesus, but that is not his promise. The reward of following Jesus is Jesus himself. And friends, that is worth it. Jesus is worth it. He is worth following. He is worth embracing. He is worth loving and serving and worshiping. The reward for following Jesus is enough. John encourages the church, and he says this in Revelation 13, this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Yes, indeed, doesn't it? See, we are a taste of new creation. We are a taste of new Jerusalem. We're to reflect that new creation, not Babylon. But there's a challenge, right? We live in Babylon, and yet we're to be living differently. We aren't supposed to be violent or manipulative or oppressing others. We're to look like Jesus, loving others, turning the other cheek, bringing forgiveness instead of bitterness. We're to seek generosity more than greed. This is not a message just for elite followers of Jesus. This is a message for the whole church. Revelation says that as followers of the Lamb, we will share in the Lamb's victory by sharing in our witness, by following Jesus, by looking like Jesus. To follow the lamb is to do what the lamb does and did. But life comes through death. Victory comes through defeat. Those who want to gain their life will lose it and gain so much more. This is a message of encouragement to the church then and it is now to give us hope to hold on to give us hope in the waiting, to give us hope that even when things are going sideways around us, when maybe the work that we're doing doesn't seem like it is bearing fruit, that God has not stopped working. It's not for us to bring change into the world, but to bear witness to the change maker, to be faithful to the one that will transform, will redeem and will restore, not to manipulate, not to have the ends justify the means, but to look like Jesus in this world is what God wants us to do. We're coming to the time of communion, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, and it's a beautiful reflection of Christ's work, his sacrifice for everyone, even his enemies, even those who were going to deny him, betray him, abandon him. It's a message of receiving that love that God gives us and channeling it to the world, loving others instead of fighting others, loving others instead of persecuting them, Praying for them and blessing them. We celebrate it every week because I I think it's the most important part of our service. It's what Christ does for us. And it's a picture of how we are to be in this world. Broken and poured out. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are in fact here. That you came to bring life and paradoxically gave up life so that we could have life. And you call us into the same journey to be faithful to who you are, to look like you in this world, to show up for whatever might be in front of us, God. And we don't do it alone. We don't do it in our own strength, God. We do it through who you are. And we know you are working in this world. You are working in our lives. You are working in our church. Even if we can't always see it, we do not labor in vain, Jesus but we know you are working in ways we cannot see. You don't call us to create the outcome. You call us to be faithful. So give us the strength to be faithful in your name. Amen.